Welcome to Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Boat Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Lindner. And I'm Adam Grossman. As you can see, both of us are here today. And as we talked about at the beginning of the season, you know, Adam and I wanted to, to take time in, in, in between some of the great interviews that, that, that we have and the great guests that we have to talk to each other about lots of things going on in sports. And I think, you know, Adam and I were catching up previously and it, now is a really good time because there, there's some interesting things going on in sports and, and, you know, especially one of those being the return in, in what seems like a more full force way to, to in-person events and, and people being in the stadium. So and Adam, first of all, how are you? Yeah, doing well. Uh, good to catch up. Good to have this conversation. I'm looking forward to talking about, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about all the events that were happening right now. So be good to yeah, catch up on those. Yeah, it is cool. It's cool to see, you know, especially for us and a lot of listeners is fans of in-person sports. And actually it's interesting coincides with teaching my course right now. And we were talking about the two modules in-person and, and at-home viewing. And, and it, you know, you and I were talking about how things like, you know, the Formula One event in Miami, the, the Kentucky Derby, playoffs, you know, across multiple leagues, baseball being back in full swing. It really does seem as though we're getting to a point now where those big marquee events are happening in person and, and fans have really come back in the stands. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, you mentioned that's exactly right. I think what we were just talking about before we jumped on the podcast is this kind of is the culmination of the back in person um sporting sporting event season so uh clearly um there are multiple events going on nba playoffs nhl playoffs nfl draft formula one having a marquee event in miami um so there's just all these events um are coming back online and i think what will be interesting something we talk about in more detail is hey what what does that mean for the sports industry more generally what does that mean in terms of some of the things that our students take a look at in their class but also you know, we talked to a lot of our guests prior to um, in prior episodes. We talked to them about like, what have you, what are some medium to long term takeaways from the impact of COVID on the business? And now that things are starting, even if they're, you know, obviously knock on wood, given that there's been a recent wave of COVID, but um, the idea is that if, if this is starting to come back to a norm, normal situation, you know, do we start to see those lessons and those um, or those ideas that we talked about with previous guests? Do we start to see those rolled out? In the industry in the ways that we anticipate are there going to be changes and that's something that we definitely want to uh, take a look at yeah i think that is really interesting to see what stays right over the last two years and i guess really the, the, the first you know starting in march of 2020 if we rewind the clock all the way back then i was teaching in person at that time and we actually had to have the last two courses the two meetings, you know, remotely and then went remote from there. And I think, you know, at the beginning of that, we were talking about how do sports adapt, right? In the second year, when it started to come back, it was, okay, how do these, this hybrid model work? And more recently, we're talking about, so what sticks, what stays around from these experiences? And I think, you know, the easiest, easiest example to point to is something like contactless payment, right? I mean, those things were accelerated years and years in advance. And you see things like, Legion Air Stadium in, in Vegas. There's no cash there. I think a lot of you know venues are going in that route. But it will be really interesting to see those things that stick around and if if it enhances the fan experience in some way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, it, that's a good point about ticket. You know, obviously, mo- a lot of the sports industries was moving to mobile ticketing um, and the contactless payments. Um, that was something we had talked about. Um, you know, you talk about your class, we talk about my class. I've written some uh, blog posts about it, but you're right. I mean, move, the move towards contact, particularly 
you know, at, interestingly, you know, one of the things that contactless mobile payments maybe introduced and made sports fans maybe a little bit uh, make it easier to transition to the NFT movement and particularly leverage, you know, moving away from paper tickets, leveraging tickets as potentially as NFTs. And, and how does that work? How does that operate? That was one of, you know, particularly whether it's um, blockchain, Web3, you know, technology, how is that going to impact the potential um, you know, potential, how is that potentially going to impact the sports industry? One key way is sports um, ticketing, and, you know, both in terms of the core blockchain technology itself, in terms of tracking where and how tickets are spent or tickets are exchanged, whether in primary or secondary markets. So like think about either the team selling tickets directly or the team and fans and, and potentially ticket brokers uh, looking at the secondary market and then tracking sales and potentially, you know, one application of blockchain technology from ticketing is that, uh, is the resale. That's one of the kind of the um, value adds of blockchain technology, not just in sports, but generally, particularly when it comes to intellectual property or tickets, is that the creators of that, those the creators and rights holders can continue to monetize um, the asset as it's being resold. And the idea of that being something that starts and uh, being starts in sports ticketing, given that there's already a substantial secondary ticket market, may have a good application of blockchain technology there. Um, and then also, like I said, with NFTs, NFTs particularly add, you know, that's interesting that we're talking about in the context of in-person, obviously, NFTs were a big part of the Miami Formula One experience um, through multiple different um, stakeholders and multiple different um, uh, groups at the Miami. But that was certainly a big point of emphasis given both the crypto.com um, overall sponsorship of the race, but obviously multiple uh, partners, including FTX uh, sponsoring teams uh, at the race. So it's definitely something that we um, is of interest. And, you know, like I said, the idea of now really putting the um, rubber, I mean, no pun intended with motorsports, putting the rubber to the road here about, are we going to start to see those implementations of technologies and are we going to create these, you know, different, what does it mean to attend the sports? What does it mean to um, really think about how, um, you know, what is it, right? What does it mean to attend sports? What does it mean to participate in sports? What does it mean from a fan perspective, from a media perspective, from a rights holder perspective? So it's all very interesting stuff that was happening and coming to fruition. Is it good? Is it good pun? Is it, is it well placed pun? <laughs> um, have you ever been to a Formula One event? I had not. I have not. It, you know, I, I lived in Europe for a time and I remember, so I grew up in Indiana. And I, when I was little, the Indianapolis 500 was such a big thing. And, and let me tell you, there's a big difference between what the Indianapolis 500 used to be and, and Formula One. I think that, you know, it is, it's quite the event. They, they certainly put on quite the event. It's really interesting to see that it's, it's driven to the States more pun, but it's gotten so big in the States here because I, I think that they've done a really good job with coverage and so on. You know, Adam, one thing to dig into there, I think the ticketing thing and the ticketing aspect of, well, the underlying technology, the powers, you know, NFT and the blockchain and so on, I think is a fascinating piece. The question that I have, and I think you're well positioned to answer this, is sort of all the people that have a stake in those tickets. And what I mean by that is if you look at it in a perfect world, right? A lot of times tickets are bought by fans on the secondary market. If you look at how an implementation of using blockchain technology for tickets, right? If the, the team themselves own that and then the resold and so on. Do you think that there is a hurdle to get over with sort of all the, the links in the chain in the ticketing sort of ecosystem to be able to use that type of technology in ticketing? Or do you think that that can sort of integrate into how we see things today? Uh, I think the answer is yes to both. I think there's definitely a lot of challenges. There's a lot of things. I mean, a lot of this technology is new. A lot of this technology hasn't been put into place 
But this is, you know, one of the questions that comes up generally about blockchain technology is that it, obviously the most famous application of blockchain technology is in cryptocurrency. And whether it's, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, Dogecoin, um, Shiba, you know, like whatever the um, coins are that have been created, that's typically where it's, um, things have been focused. And similarly, there's been obviously a lot of focus we've talked about already on NFTs or how do you monetize uh, particularly digital assets. NFTs, there's a little bit of a misnomer. NFTs in and of themselves are just, they're literally called non-fungible tokens because they're, you know, you, you're being able, NFTs provide unique ownership, improve unique ownership of a digital asset. So they're like a more, they're like a deed to a car or a deed to a house. They're not, the NFT itself is not the product typically, uh, or even though people use that kind of interchangeably, it's a little bit of a misnomer there. But the idea is that, um, you know, those are the two central application when it comes to when people think about sports, when that's really not the case. Cryptocurrency, crypto exchanges or NFTs are certainly areas that are worthy of exploration and will have a significant impact on the sports industry. But what you're talking about is if they get potentially a, another application, potentially, although not necessarily potentially, a even better use case for sports of how do you, you know, more on the supply chain, more literally on a chain, obviously it's blockchain. So you can see proof of ownership and that way everybody gets to monetize that. And I think that that part, particularly whether it comes from sports ticketing or sports media, um, you know, being able to know exactly where tickets are, who they're going to, and then having the original creator of the content monetize that uh, is really important, really valuable. It's just very, you know, again, how does that work with the integration? A lot of um particularly major sports properties or the Ticketmaster or Live Nation in some form, a lot of venues, you know, it's, so, and again, making sure that's all done properly, correctly is, is a significant challenge that has several hurdles, but in terms of like, could you make a clear business use case of how this would benefit all stakeholders? Yes. And I think, you know, ticketing is one aspect, but then media is another aspect where, one of the biggest challenges in the sports industry is piracy of content and being able to put content on the blockchain and being able to track content to eliminate piracy, but also enable rights holders and, and property holders to monetize that content in ways you know that can be resold in ways that are uh, agreed to legal and then also allow everybody to benefit and monetize. That is another really good application potentially of the blockchain. Um, and then, you know, it, going back on the content point, particularly when we're talking about Formula One in Miami, um, that's, you know, Netflix is, it, you know, probably is its own discussion about what's going on with Netflix right now. But the idea yeah. that Netflix obviously drove uh, significant interest, particularly in the United States with the drive to survive to the fact that there were so many people who attended both the Austin race earlier uh, or last season. Um, and then this season with Miami, um, this, you know, it just shows the power of content. And this is something we talk about in the context of my class and obviously here's the youth house price, but, you know, using technology to drive and using technology, technology, media and content to drive people to the in-person and in-venue experience and being able to monetize people, you know, directly through monetized content, but also monetize um, and, and create actions around content to drive um in-person attendance is something uh, in my book that we use in our class, uh, the sports strategist developing leaders for a high performance industry. We, we show how the UFC used a similar strategy by leveraging um, the ultimate fighter to help, you know, in creating a, um, a television show around a survivor type contest where, where the winner got to uh, contract with the UFC and how that helped to drive in-person attendance and drive up ticket pricing. You know, obviously uh, Formula One is replicating that in some form now. So you know, there's a lot there. Obviously I just went over a bunch of different topics all in a row, but that's what's interesting. I mean, that's what's interesting about the sports industry is how technology and all the things that are talking about both inside and outside sports can directly impact the sports industry. 
100%. And I think, you know, you're right. We could, un- there's a lot to unpack with Netflix currently in, in many, in many regards, but I think you're absolutely right of how the content itself driving, you know, drive to survive and those types of that show itself drove so much interest and in then subsequent viewership of the actual live events. But you're, you're so right in the sense that sports is really one of the last sort of bastions of appointment television. And it makes that content so valuable and it drives, like you said, experiences back to, you know, consumers, whether they're fans into the stands or consuming the products in different ways. What's really interesting. So last week we had Kieran, another instructor of the program as a guest, and he is the CFO of the Bulls. He said something really interesting with an enormous percentage, enormous percentage of Chicago Bulls fans never see a Chicago Bulls game in person, right? They never come to the United Center. And because of that, teams and leagues and venues have really had to create interesting and in, in, you know different ways to get at consumers, and which I think is exactly what you're talking about here. You see the creative and strategic use of, of reality shows or, or some of those behind the scenes type things that drive consumers to then want to watch what is the, the actual core product of the, the sport or the event or those types of things. So really fascinating to see how it shakes out there. Well, What's also interesting though, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say the only, I almost as usual, I was hundred percent agree with you, but except for the <laughs> core product, uh, I think the, the challenge interestingly with the core product is that right now the core, the core product is media rights, right? Particularly for major sports. Mm-hmm. So like the content in and of itself is the core product in a way that most of these major sports properties are making money. Um, what's interesting is that UFC at the time wasn't making that much, other than it's changed subsequently uh, and through various different deals, particularly UFC's deal with ESPN. But um, that that wasn't necessarily the case. And it was a con- it was a revenue. I sometimes call it content multiplier, but it's a revenue multiplier to have media content help drive in person. It particularly throughout the history of sports and the sports industry, you're absolutely right. Media is only you know, a lot of organizations were focused on how do I maximize in-venue attendance because that was the primary revenue stream. And there were always concerns that new media channels would denigrate that revenue stream. What's now the case, for, again, this is not for every sport, but particularly major sports uh, entities and major sports properties. The media is the product and the, you know, creating, is that always going to be the case? You know, that's obviously a subject of significant debate between a lot of people in the sports industry. But yeah, that's exactly right. I think, um, it's right to point out, though, that media has been used throughout the history of sports industry to drive in-person attendance because that was the core product. But like, right, what is media, particularly given all the challenges potentially with um, pay, pay TV and you know cable TV and um, uh, when you're talking about um, yeah, I mean pay TV, cable TV, if, if that model can subsist or right as particularly if things move to a direct consumer or some form of streaming platform, how does that all work? And does, and going now going back to your original point, does that make the experience and event itself? If the monetization from, you know, um, pay TV goes down and there's not able to secure the same level of media rights deals in the future, does that make this kind of come back around and make it cyclical? It's certainly an interesting question. Yeah, it really is an interesting question. I mean, you know, especially too, as you see, you know, talking about streaming and, and it, that it, it, pay TV and those pieces is something that I spend my days in. And I think what's really interesting that we're seeing now is the fragmentation of this content. And, you know, if you look back historically, something like Netflix, who, you know, has lost a third of their value in the last three, four months, whatever it is, you know, they were a place that, that 
wanted to pay lots of money to content creators to have their content showed on their service, right? And then it became what it was. And the owners of that content, Disney's, the Warner Brothers, the, the Paramounts of the world said, well, maybe we should get in this game too. And now those large media entities have their own services. But what we're coming to in some strange way, we all wanted the, we don't want the glowing box and on our television and, and you telling us all these different channels that we have to have to get content but we're getting back to what it looks like cable. You know what I mean? Meaning that we're having, we have to have, do you have Hulu? Do you have ESPN plus? Do you have this? Do you have it to, to be able to watch that content? And I think that that's, what's really interesting for, you know, the sports rights have stuck to broadcast television and or cable television in some ways, because the, again, the value that is there, but I wonder, you know, as we move to a, a an interesting place of are more of these things going to be on streaming? Is it going to be in, in tandem? You see now Apple with the Friday night baseball, right. And, and having that exclusively, there's lots of whispers about what's going to happen with Sunday NFL Sunday ticket and who's going to eventually end up with those things and what rights will be there. And so as those things shake out, I mean, do you think that we're always going to see a broadcast component to, especially the major sports in the U S or do you think it could move to an all streaming type model? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I, I think the answer is obviously, yeah, the, the cop-out answer is obviously to be determined. But um, I think what's interesting actually is um, the recent merger, or the completion of the merger between um, what was, you know, um, Time, uh, uh, AT&T, Time Warner, and the Discovery. Warner, yeah. Yeah, with, with Warner, with Discovery, and the CEO, David Zaslav, said, you know, there's a reason that we spent so much money on the pay TV model is it generates significant free cash flow for our business. Um, Warner Media, I can sorry, I apologize for my uh, senior moment there in terms of not remembering the name. But, you know, the, now, which is now Warner Discovery, uh, is the, the idea there is that that model has been lucrative, not just for sports, but for obviously non-sports. And the idea that um, obviously, uh, particularly, um, programming has been most easily monetized in the pay TV bundle and that the disaggregation has been a problem in terms of their most, most streaming platforms have operated at losses um, by design in terms of trying to scale up user acquisition and, 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 you know, as you mentioned in terms of paying for content creation, but the idea is that, um, yeah, I mean, like, do I, is, is the, the preferred currently the preferred point of view of most sports organizations or the major sports organizations is to maximize the reach of the audience through distribution channels. Um, and is that, and that is certainly, you know, that's the literal definition of broadcast, right? Broadcast is to reach as large an audience as possible. Um, the challenge is like what you're saying is if there is, consolidation of streaming platforms, uh, you know, obviously the Warner Media uh, Discovery being an example of that, but and, and Disney's acquisition of multiple assets and consolidating Hulu under its control, right? If that happens and they're in all these platforms, whether it's Netflix, um, Warner Brothers Discovery, um, Disney, if they're, if they're similar types, you know, if they're able to aggregate large, and app, you know, like Apple, if they're able to aggregate large audiences, could I see, you know, Apple's making the bid, or it's been reported, I should say, Apple's making a bid for um, the DirecTV Sunday, what was the DirecTV Sunday NFL ticket package. And, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, made the play for baseball. Peacock has its own uh, early morning baseball, you know, window now on Sunday. There's, you know, do I think that's where sports organizations, I think what what's generally going to happen is sports organizations are going to try to maximize um, 
maximize distribution and maximize the dollars they can generate for media rights distribution. And as you said, you know, sports for now, um, or it seems like in the foreseeable future, if not in longer than that, is the primary reason that the pay TV bundle exists, whether it's sports, uh, news, or events. Um, those are the reasons, those are the main drivers of, you know, mostly the, uh, other content sources rarely stack into the top 100. Obviously, the NFL being when you talk about top 100 programs for the year on um, traditional networks is typically at least 70, if not more uh, of the um, top 100 programs for the year. So um, with sports making up a big portion of the other slots. So um, yeah, I think your, your question is the right one. I think it's more like if the distribution change, do I think like the current um, broadcasters as they move into, you know, CBS moves into Paramount Plus, NBC into Peacock, Fox using uh, Tubi or other platforms? Yeah, I think that's probably where it's going because that's how younger generations uh, consume content. But do I think the pay TV bundle, you know, do I think what, like what you're saying is the pay TV bundle economics potentially going to replicate into the streaming? I think that's also potentially true as well. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring up David Zasloff and, and, you know, I was listening to an interview recently with Tim Masters from the Hollywood Reporter. She was talking about how it's, it's cool now to own a media company. And what she was getting by that was if you look at Netflix or someone in that ilk previously, they were technology focused company. Right. But the, the point that she was making and that David Zasloff had made as well is that, you know, we have this traditional media company underneath that allows right. us to have to drive a bunch of revenue that can then from there help drive revenue or drive different pieces of the streaming service. If you look at his predecessor, Jason Kylar, right, from a Warner Media perspective, he pulled everything in day and date, right? And all those movies went straight to the streaming service, which is an interesting example. But kind of back to the point that you were saying is there's the melding of the two to really bring that audience as wide as possible. Right, and have something from a streaming perspective, but also have the broadcast network and so on. I have an interesting question for you, though, Adam, and this is sticking in the content realm. And this partly comes up because it's, it's relevant in my class the last two weeks. But you know, over the last two and a half years, I thought I have for some reason been on the VR bandwagon since the beginning, and and maybe I'm ready to jump off. But if you look at the last two years, two and a half years, what an interesting use case to say, well, wait a minute, there's a there's another sliver of this, right? There's the in-person experience, there's the at-home sort of broadcast or viewing experience from television, whatever. But could there be another experience of viewing sporting events in, in VR, right? To give you some level of being there. Now, those exist, right? You know, the NBA, you can get league pass in, in VR on, on an Oculus headset and so on, but it never took off. It didn't take off in a way that I thought it might because of the lack of being there in person. And do you think, well, one, do you agree? And two, do you think there's a reason behind that? Yeah, it definitely has not taken off in the way I think I'm more on your boat. Also, I thought it would be more, particularly once uh, Facebook acquired, or what is now Meta, what was Facebook acquired Oculus? I thought there would be a bigger push. I think one of the things you've brought up, though, is an interesting question is like, is whether it's uh, particularly virtual reality or is the metaverse going to replace what virtual reality was supposed to be. And if you're creating, you know, uh, the, the, the benefit of virtual reality is exactly what you said. You could create um, one of the challenges actually goes back to our original discussion or just our previous discussion on media rights. There was an opportunity to create a situation where you could feel like you were having courtside seats, but not at the stadium. Would that impact the media rights deals that these you know, have been the primary economic drivers and revenue engines of these sports leagues? 
It, arguably, yes, right? Because you could get a different or better experience for some people, at least by saying you were there. But I think the idea, uh, one of the issues that's just been, I think, purely a technology issue is that while virtual reality does work in some contexts, I think a lot of people still get motion sickness and, you know, still don't have like the greatest experience, like physically with those types of things. And um, so I think the technology hasn't delivered yet on creating a stabilized um, viewing experience that would eliminate some of those viewership issues. Um, and I think, you know, until there, the other thing is, and this is very common in technology, as you know, from your own experience, like there's right now, all the, you know, there's typically a technology co- curve where when, when you're talking about platform or, t- or um, hardware adoption, there's the hardcore users who buy the platform, then there's, you know, a lull, and then there can be an exponential growth when it goes into the mainstream user. And I just, because there hasn't been a, a specific mainstream use case, particularly potentially because the sports use case hasn't really taken off in the way that that's still like not that many people still have virtual reality and the viewing experience is not optimized for virtual reality because not that many people have it. So it's a little bit of, well, until there's enough people have it, but there's, if their you know, content isn't optimized for that experience, why would enough people get it? So, but I do think there, there may be a, and I, I wouldn't have said this a couple of years ago or even last year potentially, but given, you know, obviously Meta is Facebook changed its name to Meta to put bets onto the metaverse. And does that disrupt or change the strategic thinking around virtual reality or augmented reality when you're creating entire new universes where right games could be consumed and and or not just game games events athlete interactions everything around sports could be consumed in a different way? Um, I, will that disrupt virtual reality specifically? I, I think that's definitely an open question. Yeah, it was, consulting company Gartner has this thing they they call it the. the sort of the, the Gartner hype cycle, right? And right. sort of the innovation trigger, the the peak of, of inflated expectations and then the, the, the trough of disillusionment. I think in some ways we're kind of at the trough of disillusionment for, for virtual reality because there was a big spike of this could be the next thing in, in content consumption and so on. What's interesting though, is you mentioned AR, right? I At the beginning of this, I maybe... When I started really thinking about AR and VR, you know, from a course perspective, but also just in life in general, AR to me was limited to things like Pokemon Go, right? Right. And (laughs) I have weird feelings of seeing people walking on coming traffic while trying to play play that game. But it's taken off much more easily than VR. And I think a big part of that is because it's in your pocket all the time. And you see things like with the Carolina Panthers is a good example. They had a really interesting AR sort of implementation in the stadium and so on you can implement them easier. And I think that that, you know, it probably is the reason why that stuck around. You also, like you mentioned, you're not wearing a headset. I think that's a big barrier to entry for a lot of people. Um, motion sickness, part of it, but also, yes, there's the, the, the immersion in what you're watching, but there's also then the isolation of the fact that you're inside of that. So it, it there's a lot of that, that goes into it that, that could hinder it in some ways. Yeah, I think you, you had, those are exactly right point. Or I completely agree with them. And I think one of the things that people talk about with sports is that, or in, not just sports, but generally is immersive content. Like how can we get people immersed? But that can be, although in, particularly in this context, a double-edged sword, right? I mean, if you're completely immersed, you are completely immersed and you can't really do anything else, which is a lot of not necessarily how people consume content these days. They want the option to potentially look at other things or consume content in different ways. So yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's, um, you know, I think this is always, you know, betting on the next technology is always a problem because it's really hard. Obviously, as Yogi Berra would say, prediction is hard, especially about the future. And then, you know, the idea is that, um, you know, like what technology is going to, you know, win is going to be difficult and companies make, you know, 
you know, companies spend all day, every day thinking about this, make bets and technology that doesn't pan out. Um, you know, Snap and Google, you know, had all made bets, particularly from an augmented reality and continue to make bets, in some cases on Google Glasses, right, or some version of glasses and using glasses to create augmented reality experiences. And, you know, I think that's, you know, that, that's one of the things we talk about is like, is that technology going to ultimately be the winning technology of augmented reality? It's, it's hard to say. It's more like when you're thinking about it from, you know, when our students are thinking about it, it's like, how do you think about how technology impacts your business? What are the impacts on revenue, brand, um, marketing considerations, content consumption, creation, uh, uh, content consumption, data, analytics? You know, what are all the things that we think about in our classes? So we have an infrastructure and a framework to evaluate technology, not because we're always going to understand the nuts and bolts, or that's probably an old, you know, it's probably not the right way of describing new technology, but uh, not, not necessarily understanding the technology itself, but understanding how the technology can potentially, you know, have potential business impacts is something we want to focus on. And so to move it in a less technical way, something that you know extremely well, the one thing that comes up, we keep talking about with whether it's the virtual reality experience, whether it is streaming and the consumption of content in that way, broadcast, you know, we are so used to sports. And one of the reasons they have done so well is, is the the advertising model that is there inside of of linear broadcast right it, as you move to something and we talk about reaching that you know broadcast again you gave the de- definition of broadcast and reaching as many consumers as possible is that model sort of the the advertising model inside of linear television can that be transported to these other types of consumption whether that be streaming, whether that be something else, or is there other forms of monetization that you think are going to take hold inside of those different types of experience? Yeah, I think a a good question, obviously, curious to your perspective, but I think, again, the short answer is yes. Like, I think both are possible. There's still always going to be a demand for any kind of content that can aggregate a large audience. Um, What, you know, what my company or um, what Excel Sports Management, and now I work with uh, as Excel Analytics, what we focus on is, not just scale, but it's uh, it's in, you know, things we've talked about, whether it's engagement, fit, um, and uh, sentiment. So essentially, are people actually interacting with the content? Are people having a positive experience with that content? And is this audience the right fit for the content that you're trying to produce and whatever the end goal of that fit means? And if this is the right audience and are you treat, achieving the right objectives? So I think that's from our perspective, that's where the model has moved. It's not a, a or, but and. Yes, we want large audiences, but we want them to be the right audiences, doing the right things at the right times to drive the impact that you know for our business, whatever those all those mean for the business. Um, and I think one of the things actually that this where blockchain again comes back into play. Not that the blockchain is the only solution for this, but the idea of when there are multiple different platforms, it makes it much more essential to know how the content is being consumed and who it's being consumed by. And in a blockchain environment that the, the benefit, or at least from a, from that perspective is that you would be able to see everybody who's consuming the content, even if it's on different pl- platforms, just having somewhat different experiences and through different distribution channels. Um, now there are issues with like, is, are there privacy issues that we need to think about, right? How does that actually work, particularly within legacy platforms, whether that's in media or ticketing? So there's definitely a lot of questions to work out, but that is, and I, I wrote a, a post about this um, in terms of that is one of the potential features of blockchain from a media perspective is that you actually could have a pay for a consumption model. And that would change the way that uh, specifically advertising and partnerships work, where 
advertise would move more towards a um, platform specific way or product integration way or things that are maybe more organic than a standard advertising break. Um, now, I think, do I think that's again, immediate? No. And do I think there will be room for both advertise more traditional advertising or breaks in content um, and more direct product integrations and more, you know, um, you know, specific platforms, specific content, I think both will end up working, but I think that is one of the benefits is that if there is going to be a change in the advertising model, how would that work? And could, you know, can, you know, if, if advertising is a significant revenue generation, particularly for the traditional broadcast, uh, provider, how would they monetize the content to create revenues that are similar to what exists now? That would be a way to do it is if you can a, pay every time somebody has the stream uh, or somebody accesses the content and then also show that information directly to uh, advertisers and partners and see exactly who's consuming it. That potentially is better for everybody. I agree. And I think that, you know, it's interesting. I agree that camera, what service it was recently. I opened it for the first time and it asks, do you want targeted ads? Right. right. And so implicitly underneath that, there is some level of, okay, you're going to give up your data, like location, like some demographic data, you know, and I click yes. And the ads have now the ads for me are mostly stuff for small children, but <laughs> they're targeted because that's right. right. But I think you're right in the sense it's short-sighted in my view. You know, you see the argument all the time of it, this is a strange comparison, but in baseball, there's the the sabermetric sort of numbers people, and then there's the old school scouts, and and like you, it's two sides of one coin. The short sightedness there is that it doesn't have to be one or the other; it can be a, a right. mixture of the two, right? And it's the same thing here in the sense that I agree with you. There's always going to be some view of linear broadcast and and the advertising, the ad breaks that come with that. But I think it's also short sighted to think that that is the best model for other consumption mediums, right? Meaning that in, from a streaming model, yeah, you might have those logical breaks and there may be something that's there, but there's different ways that you can monetize that inside of it. Like you talked about with knowing something about the consumer and so on. I, I think one thing that you brought up with the, the pay for consumption model is really interesting because it does take that sort of direct consumer. And I think that, you know, obviously we've seen that in a lot of different ways. You know, WWE was, was one that was one of, did it early, went directly to consumer, did really well, but then brought it back in and is now back with, I think that it's on Hulu, um, you know, but I think it's a really interesting way. And I think there's some sports that would work extremely well in, right? The ability of people are going to pay for, for NFL content, right? If you had to do it in that, in that fashion, but do you think that we ever get to a model where there is hey, you can watch this on linear broadcast or you can pay a dollar 99 and consume that on whatever device it may be from, from a different service. Yeah. Well, I think I, I, I just, I think the WWE's peacocks, I think it's been a bit peacock. That's right. Peacock subscribers, but yes, I think the short answer is I think there will certainly be experiments with different. Um, yeah. I think there'll certainly be experience. I mean, obviously that's happening now just in terms of advertising, there's different platforms have different level of advertising and you can pay to potentially reduce the amount of advertising. What I would say, actually going back to your point about um, targeted advertising is that, that there's definitely research that shows that people, you know, I think the, the popular consumption or popular narrative, so to speak, is that everybody hates ads, which I don't think is actually true. I think people want that, like you're saying, the ads or sort of we're saying like the ads that are targeted to them in the ways and the partnership opportunities, because people do need information to make decisions and they need things all the time. And the idea of creating partnership models that work, I think is helpful. There's also been, 
research, you know, that shows that ad breaks actually do help the viewing experience is that sometimes it is hard to see three hours in a row of the same thing. Um, so, or two hours or three hours. So that can be helpful. That being said, obviously to your point, absolutely. I think there's, there's definitely the the pervasive uh, view and particularly whether it's sports media is that people want customized content experiences and they want to consume content in the ways that they want to consume content. And the winners will be people who create the content consumption opportunities that best that match what the audience wants, not necessarily what the rights holder is looking for. And the idea of like, you're exactly what you're saying is like, could you create multiple distribution channels? And that is kind of what's happening already a little bit, right? There are a lot of these new media rights deals have specific carve outs for um, the direct to consumer platform um, or the streaming platform of the, the uh, rights holders so that then when they negotiate the deal that they would have, you know, people can consume those in different ways. I think what's interesting is that even now the, you know, I think people can say that all of the broadcast model or the pay TV model is having a lot of challenges. If you look at the audience metrics, though, like definitely by far the most way that sports is consumed is in traditional channels. So like that we think will change over time and has moved into that direction, but there's no question at this moment and probably for the near term that the most popular consumption is on those broadcasts and pay TV more traditional models. And that is why this media rights cycle, whether it's with the NFL, the NHL, MLB, you can see that there's all these companies are willing to pay such, you know, what seems to be a lot of money because that is, where people are consuming the content is on those traditional platforms for now. Again, that I think will change over time. That's certainly what's happening now. Yeah. You know, one thing that, that you and I talked about before we start recording, it's I think really interesting to see one, one thing that in some ways is as a sports fan felt really familiar, which is different than it has been in the last few years, but was to see, you know, over 150,000 fans at Churchill Downs and watching the Kentucky Derby. And, and, you know, I haven't seen the ratings yet, but I, I think that they, they're, they're expecting those to be pretty, pretty strong, especially in the, the last couple of years. But I think what's really interesting about that is to see the appetite for that live sporting, those live sporting events and events itself. But I guess the question, the last sort of thing here is, do we see a horse racing? it's an interesting type. It's an interesting, interesting sport. I mean, you always wonder is, you know, we see things like formula one becoming more popular in English soccer in America or European soccer coming more popular in America. Is there space, you know, the Kentucky Derby when I was a kid, we watched it every year. Right. And it was a big thing. I don't know if that's still the case for younger viewers today. And if it's still sticking around, but do you think there is room in sort of the sporting landscape for big events like, you know, uh, horse racing in the Kentucky Derby? Yeah. I mean, I think the, it's a good question, particularly as a, like a final question as we're wrapping up here is like, yeah, I think the betting handle is probably a good indication mm. of where that comes from. And I think that's, yeah. you know, I think obviously that's, just, again, another podcast and a whole topic of conversation of one or multiple podcasts is sports betting, but clearly like that's horse racing has a long tradition of sports betting. The handle I believe is expected to be the largest handle for any single sports races for this year's Kentucky Derby. Um, that's obviously as more and more states come online with sports gambling that's in sports betting. Um, that's definitely something where I think, you know, I think that's not something we talked about obviously that much on this podcast, but the impact of sports betting and creating, you know, events around sports betting, particularly like horse racing, obviously is something that's going to continue to draw interest because it literally draws your potentially your financial and economic interest. And, you know, I, I obviously I think horse racing has 
obviously throughout the history of sports racing has, has had sports betting. So they've obviously been well suited to that. So, you know, I think there's always going to be this idea of like, well, there was a time in the past where more people did one thing and that's continued. And that was always a challenge. Well, people used to sit by the radio, people used to sit by television, people, you know, so I, I, I totally agree with you. Like clearly the ratings and the viewership audiences for single events across the sporting landscape, even the Super Bowl have not reached the heights at times. Sometimes they have, but most of the time they've been declining in overall audience consumption and traditional model, but it's still large audiences. There's still large broadcasts. And I think sports betting will continue to drive interest as long as there's opportunities to, um, you know, I think as long as there's opportunities to have engagement in whatever form that is, whether that's monetary or passion points or otherwise, um, I think there will be more opportunities. And clearly, you know, there's also going to be something um, as we talked about this, you and I have talked about this before, and, and we've talked about it in our classes, I think it's the long tail, right? I think whether it's flow sports, whistle sports, overtime, there's going to be potentially smaller audiences, but really passionate audiences who are engaged in the content and potentially willing to pay more. And if you're talking about purely from a revenue perspective, um, the two components of revenue for any business are volume and price. And you may be decreasing the volume of fans, but if you're increasing the price point that they're willing to pay for the content, then your revenue you know, may go down somewhat, but it could not be as big of an impact if you find the passionate audience base that, that's really interested in your content. Yep. And that passionate audience is not only going to consume that content, but all the things around it, right? Because they are much more ingrained in it. Yeah, I think it's, you're right. The gambling aspect of it has it's such a big, big driver. And, and, and as you meant, they, you know, Horse racing has done that really well. We're starting to talk about that more in baseball and in other sports, but, but, but horse racing has done that really well for a really long time. And you mentioned that we, we haven't talked about it a bunch on this podcast, but there are some, some guests coming up as we go through the course of season that will be a little more focused on some gambling because it is such a big thing in, in you know the sports world. But, you know, Adam, thank you for the time today. You did mention a couple of things. You mentioned a couple of posts that you've written recently. I wanted to to ask you, you know, previously if you get those on on blog six, where can we find all those 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 writings that you've done recently? Yeah, unfortunately blog six uh, after my company was acquired by Excel Analytics is is uh, has been taken down. But yeah, we we're, a lot of our content that we create now is on LinkedIn. That's the easiest place to see it. Um, so if you check out LinkedIn, you'll see posts um, that I've created. Also, obviously, students or, or fans of the podcast can always reach out to us via email, um, revenue above replacement at northwestern.edu. Or if you want to reach out to us personally, I'll get mine. It's adam.grossman at northwestern.edu. Yep. And you can reach out to me, Clinton at northwestern.edu. But thank you for the time today, Adam. Well, thank and you. We'll, yeah. yeah. And we'll be, we'll be back in, in the coming weeks with, with more interviews from, from both Adam and I.